This is Yudaha Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. As we approach Yom Yerushalayim, uh, Jerusalem Day, commemorating the unification of Jerusalem during the 1967 Six-Day War, I asked my friend Shammai Siskind, a Jewish educator and resident of Jerusalem, to come and join me on the show uh, in order to discuss Yom Yerushalayim uh, from multiple angles to try to really understand what this day is all about and its significance on the Jewish calendar and in Jewish history. Shammai, welcome to the show. Hi, Yoda. Thanks for having me on. I just want to say that I've been a huge fan of your uh, of your project for a while on this podcast in particular. So it's a real uh, it's a real treat to be on as a guest. Hi, it's a real treat to have you. So you're a teacher at Yeshiva Kotel, correct? Correct. And at Yeshivat Kotel in the old city of Jerusalem, Yom Yerushalayim will be considered, will be treated as a real Jewish festival on our calendar, no different from Hanukkah, Purim, etc. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, as you can imagine, for the people that live in the old city and uh, for the institutions in the old city uh, in particular, it's uh, it's a day that resonates very deeply. I mean, to this day in the in the yeshiva, if anyone has the, uh, the the opportunity to visit, there are uh, there are pictures of the of the teachers and the students of the soon to be of the soon to be institution uh, carrying by hand their mattresses and other living materials to uh, establish the ad hoc <laughs> the ad hoc school right as they had the ability to uh, to enter to enter an area which was essentially closed off to Jews for uh, for 19 years since the since the establishment of the state until that until that moment so. Yes, not only is it a uh, is it a real day of celebration this at the same at the same level as, as any other holiday, but um, for the people that live in this city, uh, and many people still remember that day that had experienced it, uh, it has uh, it has deep resonance. It's really the uh, uh, it's really the 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 miracle of our time. People feel that it's not just something historical that they're commemorating, but something that that in a very real way they're reliving uh, right. every day and living through. Correct. Right. So you mentioned you mentioned 1948 and you mentioned those 19 years where we were separated from Jerusalem. And of course, when we're talking about Jerusalem, we're really talking about Jerusalem between the walls. We're talking about ancient Jerusalem, not necessarily every neighborhood that has now become part of municipal Jerusalem, which is also important and significant. But really here we're talking about, you know, historical Jerusalem, the old city, the city of David, you know, the Mount of Olives. Of these places are really what you know what some people would refer to, I guess, as the holy basin. Correct. It's the heartland, the heartland feature of what uh, of what Jerusalem was, and indeed what was in the hearts and minds of Jews through through centuries and millennium when they had Jerusalem in mind. They weren't necessarily thinking of uh, of let's say uh, Nachlaot or Rechavia or uh, Givat Zev or uh, places like this that that are that are again, as you said, important, but they're kind of far afield. When people thought of Jerusalem. They're thinking about those areas that you mentioned, you know, the closer, closer to what we refer to today as the old city, although it's not exactly, um, exactly a one-to-one comparison, as you know, like just geographically, but yes, it's more, it's more or less that, uh, that area that is in, that is in the Jewish ideal of Jerusalem. When, uh, when a Jew thinks of Jerusalem, when he aspires to Jerusalem, that's, that's what he or she is thinking of for sure. Right. So because you touched on that 19 years of having a state, but not having Jerusalem, I do want to touch on what was going on there? Because we're basically talking about a 19-year period between 1948 and 1967, when it wasn't just that the nation of Israel didn't have Jerusalem, but at least from a political perspective, 
the nation as a whole didn't appear, at least on the surface, didn't appear to want Jerusalem, to really be clamoring for advancing towards Jerusalem, didn't feel the loss of not having it. And part of that might simply be the euphora of having a nation state and the means to defend yourself for the first time after roughly nearly 2000 years of being in exile and completely vulnerable to any Gentile who wanted to oppress or persecute you. And that obviously did happen frequently, meaning we had frequent experiences of very brutal, very harsh persecution for many centuries. And so it's understandable how just having a state for the first time after 2000 years, even without Jerusalem, seemed to be an incredible achievement for the Jewish people. Right, for sure. I think you're honing in on something very, very important. And I think that if there's any particular theme that we should be focusing on, like every Jewish holiday has its theme, you know, Pesach has the freedom theme and, uh, you know, Sukkot has the wandering in the desert and being under uh, God's supervision theme. And I think... future aspect of Sukkot. Sukkot is one of the few chagim we have on our calendar where we actually celebrate a future event, the victory over Gog and Magog. That's interesting. That's a very interesting point. I think that that's fair. Yeah, but the underlying point that I'm trying to bring out is that is that in addition to whatever events took place that we're celebrating and thanking God for that, for that salvation, for that past event, we're also trying to hone in on some theme to try to internalize on a personal level and also on a communal and national level. So I think that there's any theme that we should be honing in on when we arrive at Yushalayim, it should be this idea that you're honing in on. I think that that gap period between 1948 and 1967 was really, it, high, it highlighted a certain symptomology, I think, in the Jewish psyche. Um, I think that the complacency, and there certainly was a big amount of complacency uh, during that period, I think that it was due to that like euphoria that you described as this you know, watershed paradigm shifting event that suddenly the Jewish people are not some wandering you know, global nomads with no anchor and no base and now had some type of national entity, which was, you know, it's impossible for us living today to understand how powerful a shift that was. So I think the euphoria was a factor. I think the relief was also a major factor, you know, on the backdrop of the Holocaust, on the backdrop of the immediate danger that was facing the the community in Eretz Israel at that time of being completely annihilated and having like a round two of the Holocaust. Um, I think that I think that the relief, perhaps more than anything, was, you know, a huge factor of like, okay, you know, we can be calm now, you know, we can, like, we can relax. It wasn't, it wasn't a time where people were aspiring for something more. We're like looking for the next stage. They were looking to just, you know, kind of, you know, be happy and appreciative of the, of the newfound rest and uh, peace and quiet, so to speak, Mm -hmm. uh, that they had attained. And when you're in that peace and quiet mode, it's very hard to focus on what's missing. What's the next step? Like, how do we progress from here? Um, and obviously we can't, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming, just to make this clear, I'm not coming from, from the point of view that we should, you know, be judging the people in that generation. And, and obviously they had, they, they had their struggles that, you know, we can't imagine uh, what those struggles uh, were today in our, in our uh, contemporary circumstances. But again, I think, I, think that, I think that to highlight what exactly was going on, there was this type of, you know, complacency of like the yearning to be normal. You know, the yearning to just to just be able to, you know, a national level chilling out, uh, not having to progress, not having to look for the next aspiration, the next stage of progress. And then suddenly 1967 kind of thrust upon us, whether we wanted it or not, 
um, the, the situation where we kind of had to progress. Like there was no option to not, you know, we were being threatened, you know, in an existential way by multiple forces from without, there was no other option. And this next stage was kind of put upon us and we had to kind of like figure out what to do. And as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure many of the listeners know that once we did achieve this victory, which kind of just happened, right? It almost, it's almost like it wasn't even planned. Um, the leaders of the country and perhaps much, much of the citizenry as well, we didn't really know what to do with it once it you know, kind of like fell into our lap. I agree with everything you're saying, but I think we should probably unpack a, a lot of the things you've already said. Uh, yeah, you know, sure. What you said before about this desire for normalcy, I see that as very central to Zionism. You know, Zionism as the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef, as like this messianic movement of the tribal spiritual force of Yosef, which really represents what Israel shares in common with the other nations of the world, especially the more dominant civilizations of any given historic period. Correct. You know, that's focused on the material well-being of the Jewish people, you know, our economy, our security, having an army, the means to defend ourselves and, and support ourselves. You know, that's very much Yosef, that's very much Zionism. And there was, I would say that leading up to 1948, for almost a decade leading up to 1948, there was a vanguard movement that kept pushing Israel forward, that kept pushing the Jewish people forward. And I think that was the Lehi, the Israel, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, which really had, you know, really had a deep understanding of what they were fighting for, of their place in Jewish history, what their struggle had to do with the broader story of our people, including many of our ancient uh, experiences and future aspirations. And they were able to drag, really, I mean, this small group was able to drag nearly the entire Jewish community of Palestine behind them in a confrontation with the British Empire. Meaning this was a group that recognized the British Empire as a foreign occupier in our land, as a force that we needed to confront, as the enemy, as the oyev, as that which is standing in the, in the way of our liberation and of our being able to be ourselves, of us just being who we're supposed to be, where we're supposed to be. And that kind of hit a wall that was able, you know, they, they were able to successfully drag the Jewish community behind them into this confrontation. And we defeated the British, you know, the British left, you know, in 1948, saying that they left as a result of Jewish terrorism, meaning that the Jewish underground beat them militarily, made them leave Palestine. But then in that war that followed, where we were attacked by surrounding Arab states, as well as the war that existed inside Palestine between the Jewish and Arab inhabitants, you know, that's a war that's a lot more complicated. And when it came to Jerusalem, we kind of hit a wall. You know, our sages teach that Jerusalem represents the unity of the Jewish people. And one of the reasons that uh, we're taught that we lost Jerusalem in the, in the war against the Romans, in the Great Revolt against the Romans, is that Jerusalem, uh, is that uh, the Jewish people were not unified. Even the various factions that wanted to fight the Roman Empire and free our land had trouble getting along with one another, had trouble uniting under a centralized leadership, and therefore Jerusalem was lost. And even though we fought hard in 1948, the Jewish people couldn't succeed in holding on to Jerusalem. And that I understand as being the result of vanguard parties not being enough. 
It's not enough that Lehi wanted to liberate Jerusalem because Lehi by itself can't liberate Jerusalem. Edsel can't liberate Jerusalem. The Haganah and the Palmach can't liberate Jerusalem. Sahel needs to liberate Jerusalem. You need a unified people's army. And we didn't have that in 1948. So no matter how politically advanced or, or ideologically advanced the Lehi was, you know, the wall was Jerusalem. They couldn't make it to Jerusalem. We lost Jerusalem in that war. And for roughly 19 years, those Lehi veterans were some of the only Israelis who really cared about continuing, who really cared about advancing uh, until 1967. And it's interesting, you know, it was Naomi Shemer, I would really credit Naomi Shemer with actually building up the sensitivity of the masses, really raising the sensitivity of the Jewish people to wanting Jerusalem. Because yeah, she, she tapped into something when she wrote that when she wrote that song, which was, you know, a few a few short weeks before the breakout of the war, but she certainly tapped into something, composed a poem, which is arguably the most famous modern Jewish poem. <laughs> she, she composed it or she, or she was inspired standing on Mount Scopus, exactly where Rabbi Akiva had stood when he had seen the foxes coming out, you know, coming out of the Holy of Holies. That's where Naomi Shemer stood, you know, saw the Temple Mount, saw Jerusalem under foreign rule, wrote this song, and this song, Yushlam Shel Zahav, Jerusalem of Gold, became the most popular song in Israeli society to the point where it actually woke up a desire for Jerusalem in the hearts of the masses. That song is what essentially carried us to Jerusalem and liberated her. Yeah, for sure, 100%. There's, there's, there's quite a bit to unpack there. You had some very interesting insights it's, uh, that I've actually never considered before. You're, you were saying how essentially the failure to bring about the full liberation of our land in 1948 was essentially a reenactment of our problems 19 centuries ago where we weren't able to get our act together and that we weren't able to be together. Uh, and that eventually led to a disintegration of the collective effort of the people to hold on, to hold on to our sovereignty. It doesn't matter how, how brave, how committed uh, each individual faction was, the fact that we weren't able have some type of unified, harmonized effort. There was no, you know, people's army. There was no people's effort. There were, you know, just a bunch of factional efforts. So that eventually led to the failure. And that's what led to the failure 19 uh, centuries ago. And that's what led to the failure in 1948. Is that basically what you're giving over? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very, very insightful. And right. And the key difference between 1948 and 1967 was as you said, that in 1967, there was an IDF. There was an Israeli defense force. There was an army of Israel, as opposed to 1948, there wasn't really. I mean, there kind of was on paper, but like in actuality, it was still a bunch of you know armed militias trying to make their way in some, in some coordinated effort, but largely, but largely uncoordinated. That yeah. was especially the case in Jerusalem because I, and I think people failed to realize that the story of Jerusalem, the story of the Jewish community of Jerusalem is actually somewhat separate from the story of Zionism, meaning Jerusalem is one of those communities, one of those Jewish communities like Tzvat, like Hebron and Gaza City until 1929, that really had predated the Zionist movement and existed independently and kind of parallel to the Zionist movement. So what was going on in, in Jerusalem, meaning when Jewish youth in Jerusalem, boys and girls in Jerusalem, went and joined the underground movements to fight the British, they weren't thinking of it in a Zionist context. They were really thinking of it in a native context, just like fighting British imperialism, because they had been living in Jerusalem either for generations, many, you know, for a long time, or they were part of an influx that really 
was happening parallel to the Zionist movement, or it wasn't really connected to the Zionist movement, whether they were right. So it wasn't really coming from this, like, you know, pioneering, like the classical Zionist uh, poster boy of like the pioneer from a foreign country coming in to reclaim something that he had never experienced from the outside in. It was more like a more organic welling up from the native consciousness. Um, is, is that, is that, I think that that captures it. And I think that, that, that that's highlighting like these two parallel modes that you were saying before from the messianic perspective of, uh, of Yosef, which is, you know, more global, more universalist focusing on what we have in common with the nations and really trying to integrate, uh, with the nations. And as opposed to the, the more Yehuda, the Judah mode, which is really focused on what makes us unique, which is what makes us distinct. Uh, our national identity, our national heritage, our history, our our values, and what we're trying to bring to the fore that makes us who we are. Essentially, I think that that I think that those two trends kind of highlight those two ideologies that really have run through us throughout our history. I mean, it's not like these two trends are anything new. I mean, these things have been around, you know, since our beginnings. And I think that really, ultimately, and if you were alluding to this with the with the with the with the references to unity, that that eventually we're going to have to find some type of harmony slash balance slash integration with these two approaches if we want to be able to you know succeed in the long term. If we want to be able to get all of our objectives, um, you know, check off all the boxes, so to speak, to be able to have a normal functioning country with uh, with all the trappings that that includes, whether that's uh, education or economy or highways or whatever, uh, being able to have that. And being able simultaneously to have a unique Jewish characteristic in this country, that's ultimately what's going to mean. It's not going to be about rejecting either one, but about bringing both to the table in their most powerful and the most powerful expressions and finding a way for them to work together. And right. I think that in a powerful way, and this is, I think, what I was trying to um, um, say before when I was talking about the takeaways or the themes um, on Yom Yushalayim. I think that this is the day that really it kind of forced upon us this reflection, like this particular reflection of we have to be able to, to have to have both of these things going on simultaneously, of knowing that we're here to be serious and that we do actually want a country, we do want a functioning uh, infrastructure, a functioning national infrastructure with all that includes, but at the same time, we, we want it to be Jewish, like we want it to be Hebrew, we want it to have that authentic, authentic theme to it. And like the 19 years of malaise uh, that we were not thinking about Jerusalem or that, in fact, most people weren't thinking of Jerusalem, there was kind of like this dormancy uh, in the nation of, you know, of not focusing on that, that kind of, you know, that kind of was, you know, a, a collective uh, embodiment of, you know, not wanting to think about the Yehuda theme, not wanting to think about, you know, what makes us unique as a people, as a nation, um, fully expressing our values, um, fully expressing the authentic Jewish character. Just so listeners understand, you're really uh, focusing in on the tension between the tribal forces of Yosef and Yehuda. Yosef, which represents what we share with the outside world and is really great at building economies, building armies, building states, etc., like really managing the world, the material world as we understand it, and Yehuda, which really represents Jewish identity in a very deep way, Torah, um, our connection to our land, our you know, historic mission, our culture, our worldview, and the tension between those two forces within Israeli society. Correct. And I would go even further and say that the stories, you know, our, 
our origin stories of the of the 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob, and the tensions that played out amongst the brothers, particularly Joseph on the one side and the brothers led by led by Yehuda on the other side, are typically playing out at a personal level what those tensions are going to be in the Jewish people forever. And indeed, we see that, like we see that, in fact, playing out. Right. Um, politically, because, yeah. because I would look at all of the Zionist parties as expressions of Yosef. And when I say the Zionist parties, I really mean um, Meretz, Labor, Yeshatid, the New Hope, Likud and Yamina. I would say those are the Zionist parties. That's and, quite a colorful collection that you packed into one camp, I got to tell you. <laughs> well, well they, that's because Zionism is really the dominant ideology, the ideological paradigm of the state of Israel. So you have many flavors of it because Yosef really built the state. Yosef is really the movement that built the body of the Jewish nation, built the state of Israel. So it makes sense that you would have so many different flavors of Yosef, so many different flavors of Zionism, just like we had so many different flavors of Zionism, so many different Zionist tendencies before the state was established. Yeah. Before the state was established, you had revisionist Zionism and labor Zionism and, and cultural Zionism and religious Zionism and all, all these. So despite the fact that there's like a huge diversity there, like mm -hmm. essentially it's just a spectrum on the same scale. It's all the underlying ideology is still the Yosef oriented liberal Zionist uh, approach to state building. Is that, is that yeah, something that you I would mean, sign off on? I mean, there's at least two or three of those parties that I think are capital L liberal Zionists today. But for the most part, all of those parties that I mentioned are functioning within the ideological paradigm of Western civilization. Meaning that you can take the political spectrums of most Western nations from liberal to conservative and apply that to Israel. And so long as Israel only has those parties that framing would make sense here. But the moment you take into consideration some of the other parties, the Haredi parties, both United Torah Judaism and Shas, the religious Zionist parties, you know, the three parties that make up Smotrich's faction, which is ironic because they're the only political party with the word Zionism in its name, but they're not really a Zionist party. They're something else. And of course, the Palestinian parties, once you factor in those groups, the linear political spectrum that makes sense in Western nations does not make sense here anymore. Correct. I think that that's something that people, when they're analyzing the political, um, the political arena, <laughs> let's say, from the outside in, they fail to appreciate that that some parties are just not operating on the same paradigm. It's just not. It's just not like it's not like they're you know more or less extreme on the same scale. They're just operating from a completely different perspective. I think that I think that that's something that uh, people miss. I think that's often that, that's something that often Israelis miss. Right. Um, but yeah, I totally I totally agree. I think part of the animosity from let's say most of the Zionist spectrum towards a figure like Bibi Netanyahu is that he himself is functioning within the Zionist paradigm, but the coalition that he's most comfortable building is one that relies on a lot of parties that function outside of that spectrum, meaning- 100%, yeah. It's ironic, but true. Yeah. Right, I, I would say the Haredi parties represent Gisachar, although they might not stay there. You know, a lot of this is fluid also, you know, identities can move, but for the time being, the Haredi parties represent Gisachar. You could say that uh, Smotrich's party represents Yuda. The Noam faction represents Levi, which is an extreme expression of Yuda. The Otsma faction represents Shimon, which is a different kind of extreme expression of Yuda. And I think a lot of the Palestinian parties, certainly the Jewish voters of those parties, represent Dan, 
which is an extreme expression of Yosef. So you right, have, like the ultra, like the ultra liberal. Right, I would say those who are really leftists, those who yeah. are, are so are so universalist that they have trouble even connecting to national consciousness. Yeah, and you would argue that all of these at at some level have a place, in fact, an important place in propelling us forward. Right, I'll tell you where I think the problem is, though. I think the problem is that even though, as you said, Yosef has an important role to play and has an important place in Israeli society, until now, it's been the disproportionately dominant tribal force. Correct. To the point that the expectation of our political leaders, our academics, our journalists, our Supreme Court justices, etc., is that the glue, even though there's an acknowledgement that Israeli society is made up of several different tribes, the assumption is that the glue keeping those tribes together, meaning the overarching values that everyone is supposed to accept, no matter what tribe you come from, are the values of Western civilization. And I think that is the mistaken assumption of Yosef, that those are the values that should unite us all. We shouldn't violate those values, whereas every tribe can still have their like, you know, their, their little individualized values, so long as it doesn't conflict with the values of Western civilization that Yosef wants the state of Israel to exemplify. Right. I think I think that essentially, you know, the problem at root is that each uh, faction or camp uh, ultimately thinks that that there really is no hope for integration, or at least the most important players think that there's no that there's no place for the other side of the table, um, and that and that there's this really you know hardcore zero sum game attitude of like you know all or nothing, which in some cases uh, you know just makes people not want to play the game, so to speak, because they they think that there's no there's really no hope of you know having having an actual meaningful substantive voice at the table. So, so they might as well just not show up. Um, what would you think that the glue is like, if you're saying that, that the, um, at the classic Western liberal paradigm is not really the glue that's holding us together. What would you say that the glue is or should be? I think the glue should be the historic mission of the children of Israel to really repair the world, to fix the world. And do you think that, that's, that there's a version of that that everyone can sign on to? Yes, but I think it requires us to transcend beyond the narrow um, perspectives of the different tribes. I think Yuda is maybe the most capable tribe of getting to that point, um, meaning one of my frustrations just with Smotrich in general is, is even though I think he represents Yuda, I think he represents the most advanced sector of Israeli society in terms of knowing who we are, knowing what our connection to this land is, understanding our story, our national narrative, what we're doing here. I think the tribe of Yuda is really, and maybe Levi are, are the most advanced sectors of the Jewish people today. Um, and that's why I was so disappointed with Smotrich's refusal to sit with Mansour Abbas to, to actually engage uh, one of the Palestinian parties that appeared to be taking a lot of steps towards us. And I really feel it important. I, I think one of the ways forward at this point would really be for those Jews who are expressions of the force of Yehuda, who really know our identity, know our story, know our connection to this land and are willing to fight, kill and die for that. Those should be the Israelis who are essentially leading 
our engagement with Palestinian society and the broader Semitic region. And I think Smotrich really missed an opportunity there, leaving- Right, I think that for a long time, um, and we can argue when when this uh, idea like came into being, but there's been this stigma on the Yehuda, on the more nationalist camp within Israeli politics, um, it's been a stigma to work with any Arab entity at all, because the Arab is the enemy. The Arab opposes opposes our very being, opposes everything that we do. And there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that that there could be that there was a time in history that where that was ultimately true. Um, and any form of engaging with any Arab entity, whether it be foreign or domestic, was essentially a form of national suicide, like more or less. But I think that you can make a very good argument that that that, that reality has been shifting like greatly. Whether it's been shifting regionally or it's been shifting locally, I think that I think that there's 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 enough uh, gradual incremental steps forward that are showing us that we have to get out of that paradigm of completely rejecting any engagement, any cooperation, any 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 working together whatsoever. I think that that I think that we need to do away with that. Um, obviously, not not being blind to the to the very real threats that exist, uh, but at the same time being open to let's say, new approaches, new, new possibilities and new, new partners. And yeah, I, I, I share your, I share your disappointment that there, that there was this unequivocal refusal to be able to work with anyone from that side. Like, even though there's been clear, there's been clear overtures, as you said, right. there's been clear overtures, like, you know, as go far ahead. as you could go, meaning we, first of all, I think we have to be realistic in terms of what overtures the other side can make before we meet them halfway. That's number one. But number two, I think most important, and I'm really speaking to the Yehuda force, I'm really speaking to the Jews who are deeply connected to our identity and to our national story, that we have to see ourselves as capable of creating the conditions for what we want. Correct. 100%. 100%. I personally think, Yehuda, that we have not gotten to the point where we, real, where we f- actually fully realize that we are masters of our own land and how much power we have. I don't think that, that, that that's been fully, fully realized yet. Coming from this place of like real strength and security could open doors for us. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that there's this lingering, you know, panic survival mode mentality that we're working with, which again, it has its basis. Like there is truth to that perspective. Like we are in a precarious situation. We are defending a small strip of land, you know, on the Mediterranean coast and all that. Like that's all true. However, having that as the primary paradigm of constantly being in this like desperate, anxious survival mode is really like, like it's really limiting, like in the end of the day and having this, uh, this anxiety um, is really preventing us from, you know, reaching forth from where we currently are now. Right. Again, I think clearly the fact that Smotrich wasn't able to do this, wasn't able to, to think in this way, wasn't able to really think like a revolutionary and say, okay, what kind of relationship do I think the Jewish people should have with the Palestinians, with the broader region? And how can I create the conditions for that relationship instead of the relationship that the you know liberal Zionists have been creating until now? Because he wasn't able to think that way is proof that he's not ready and most of his voters aren't ready, meaning that public, which I defined as the most advanced sector of Israeli society, is not ready for what I very frustratingly consider to be one of the major next steps we need to take. Right. Because for them, unfortunately, again, for, 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 that, for that constituency, any cooperation means caving. That's unfortunately- Not necessarily. Like it's, not, it's, not, the basis yeah. of the conversation isn't about you know, land or, 
or cult. Well, actually, culture is probably something that could unite us. I mean, even it's funny, even when uh, Rav Tao has come out in support of some kind of cooperation with. But just Mar- to be clear, Rav Tao is the is the is the philosophical leader of the Noam party, the more Levi-oriented well, party that you were saying before. Yeah, I would say first of all, Rav Tao is considered by many to be the the spiritual heir to Rav Kook, to be the spiritual heir to Rav Tziuda Cohen Cook, and his followers are considered by many to be like the ideological purists within the Rav Kook camp. And, yes, I think that's a fair <laughs> assessment. And, and I would call that Levi, the, the tribal force of Levi, and they have a, a small political party called the Noam Party. I would describe the Noam Party as the party that sees itself resisting cultural imperialism. And that's always spun in the media to be about women and LGBTQ. And even though that's not necessarily what their fight is, maybe that's how it's been expressed a couple of times. But I think that really it's a faction that sees itself as fighting for the Jewish identity on a deep level of the, of the state. And, but whenever Noam had, there, there was one of the um, guys from Noam uh, had mentioned uh, sitting down with Mansour Abbas and Rav Tao recently came out saying that it would be okay for the you know, national religious to sit with Mansour Abbas, or at least to speak to him. Um, whenever that happens, the mainstream Israeli media, the Yosef media, just turns it into, okay, so our homophobes want to sit with their homophobes, or our, you know, our extremists want to sit with their extremists, meaning it's not even like acknowledged as something positive when a hardline nationalist rabbi or his politicians say, let's sit down with these Palestinians and see where we can agree. Correct. I mean, this goes back to the long time trend, which is very sad, but very true, that, that in a way, only the people who are the most at home with their own personal identity can really sit across the table from someone else and look them in the eye and have a real meaningful conversation. Right. Like, like when you're both trying to fake it, when you're both trying to, you know, put on the suit and tie and try to, and try to impersonate, you know, the foreign diplomat, uh, it, it, it's all a game. And I think that everyone in their heart of hearts kind of knows that, it, that it's a game. And uh, what we need, as you said, are people that are, you know, most strongly trying to embody um, their national identities and are comfortable with saying that and are, you know, are totally open about that. Uh, those are the people that need to be um, sitting down. At least those are some of the people at least that need to be sitting down. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm optimistic about this because again, like the internal and external regional trends over here are really moving towards a normalization of people who in the past, it would, it would, be, it would be unfathomable that they would be even in the same room as each other. So today they're talking and interacting and full in, full on engagement. And, and like, this is the direction that things are going. I have to say, I do share your optimism. I do see the sociocultural trajectory of Israeli society as being one of re-indigenizing into the region, of being able to become an organic part of the Semitic region. I think that it's clear, even if you look at all of the uh, party leaders of the factions in Knesset and look at how many kids each party leader has, you see where the state is going. 100%. Purely on the demographic level. Right. So, I mean, so you well, mentioned the Haredi parties before. I mean, right. that that alone, their demographics alone is, is going to make them you know, more and more important. Which could have some challenges uh, when the Haredim become a majority or a critical mass, I don't think they'll be Yisachar anymore. I think they'll become Shimon. I think they'll become Kahanistim. Uh, and it will actually be the Levi and Yudah groups that will have to moderate. Temper them out. 
Right. Um, yeah. But in the meantime, I guess, even though I do share your optimism very deeply, in fact, I guess the frustration I felt after this fourth election was just that I thought we, we being the Yuda camp, we being the Jews most connected to our story, our identity, our homeland, our Torah, etc. I thought we were ready for something more than we're clearly ready for. So I guess I, I experienced some frustration around that. Um, I understand that not everybody, and I guess that's one of the challenges, you know, when we were speaking before about Lehi as this kind of like more advanced vanguard, those of us who are having these conversations and are asking the right questions and are applying different, you know, political theories to the state of Israel in its current form and its current moment, we can't expect everybody to be where we're at. We can't expect everybody to have gone through this process um, applied this type of analysis to Jewish national issues or, you know, the state of Israel's development, but, you know, live and learn. So here I am realizing we're not ready for something I'd hoped we were ready for. And now the question is, what am I going to do to help us get ready? 100%. I think that, again, just bringing this back to Yom Yerushalayim, where we started this conversation, if anything, this day is here to remind us that the next stage is always waiting. Like there is an actual next stage with a substantive concrete reality that is waiting to emerge and it's coming. And we have to, we have to prepare ourselves individually, collectively, um, just to have that vision, to be able to see forward to what is possible to emerge and that, uh, that real change is actually possible. You know, this country, uh, the history of this country is a blink of an eye mm-hmm. in, uh, in historical terms. And uh, there has not been a dull moment since its founding. And uh, change is constantly happening. And uh, to be open to that, like to be open, not to lose our footing, not to, to become ungrounded, so to speak, to constantly be real, uh, which is something that I think that the Yosef camp uh, very, very uh, powerfully brings to the table. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, to be really looking forward, mm-hmm. to be looking forward um, and aspiring and to know what is the next stage that we have to, that we have to bring about. Right. So that's important. I think questioning what's already been achieved in Jewish history, what's left to accomplish, what those things are, what obstacles stand in the way. This is important for anybody who's anybody who's serious about participating in the Jewish liberation struggle today. But we also have to understand the external angle, I think, that, you know, when the state of Israel was established in 1948, the Western world, or more specifically, the Vatican, experienced a theological crisis. You know, for centuries, the church had pointed to the exile and subjugation of the Jewish people as proof for the validity of the Christian faith. Correct. Israel returning to political independence in our land threatened not only the foundations of Christian dogma, but also the very underpinnings of Western civilization. Because at the end of the day, Christian theology is very much the foundational base of Western civilization, or certainly a primary foundational base. So the Vatican ultimately reconciled Israel's rebirth by denying its historical significance. They basically made two claims. The church said that we, the Western world, had mercy on the Jews following the Holocaust and decided to allow them a tiny bomb shelter. Like we gave it to them out of Christian mercy. That was their first rationalization. And their second rationalization was that this Jewish state is anyway not really in the historically significant portions of the Holy Land. It's not in Bethlehem. It's not in Hebron. 
It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in Beit El or Shiloh or Shechem or Jericho. It's in Netanya. It's in Tel Aviv. It's in Haifa. You know, Chadera. And it it wasn't. It, it didn't matter. They were able to convince themselves it didn't matter. It's really just a Western-sponsored bomb shelter for the Jewish people. But then in 1967 the world experienced a biblical style miracle in the heart of the 20th century and a miracle according to not the Christian, but rather the Jewish interpretation of scripture. So suddenly you had this kind of like ill-equipped and outnumbered Israeli military defeating three Arab states armed with modern Soviet weapons. You know, we came back to Gaza, we came back to the central mountain region, you know, we, we came back to Jerusalem. And not only did we defeat the armies of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria in the Six-Day War, but we also smashed the false idols that had been erected by Catholicism, threatening the very stability of Western civilization. We, we threatened the very stability of Western civilization. And this Jewish return suddenly possessed undeniable historical significance that 1948 didn't. And the only way I think Western civilization felt able to respond to this was to try to reverse the results of that war. I think that's one of the major pathological reasons, again, subconscious, pathological subconscious reasons for Western civilization's determination to impose a two-state solution here, to separate us from the lands we won in 1967. Because if they could take away the fruits of that victory, they could make the event irrelevant. Right. I think that Israel in its very existence is the ultimate aberration. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see the schism, like even, even with countries who openly um, self-define themselves as our allies, there tends to be um, this, this dichotomy with, uh, you know, the public support that's expressed by the policymakers or lawmakers mm -hmm. and, the, and the antagonism, very often open antagonism that you find in, you know, the foreign ministries and state departments and what have you. Because those people are looking at this situation like this is the ultimate instability. Like there couldn't be any, you know, a more powerful uh, source of instability than this little country. It throws everything off. You know, it disrupts the flow. You know, it ruins all of our plans. It's just disruptive. You know, it's just disruptive right. in any possible way. And as you said, undermines much of the foundational beliefs, whether those be philosophical or spiritual or you know, in any other worldview that you want to describe it. So yeah, Israel has this disruptive, this disruptive element to it, which I think going back to what we were saying before, like this yearning for normalcy that we also experience, like we also, you know, yearn to have this, you know, calm, um, stable, normal state of being, which in many ways is antithetical to us. You know, we're constantly striving forward. We're constantly, we constantly have this revolutionary element to how we view the world of, of constantly wanting to make things better, change things up, change the status quo, not to overturn the chessboard, so to speak, but in the sense that the belief that we came back to life after 2000 years in order to bring humanity somewhere better. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially that requires yeah. us. I mean, by definition, that requires us to challenge the current world order. Yeah. You can't bring humanity anywhere better if you're not willing to challenge the status quo. Yeah. 100%. So I think we did shock the world. I think the Six-Day War shocked the world in only six days. Jewish forces decimated three 
very capable regional armies. We returned to Jerusalem. We returned to portions of our homeland we had previously been unable to reach. By the way, I celebrate not only Yom Yerushalayim, I try to celebrate all six days because there's, you know, there's Gaza and then there's a Shomron and then there's Jerusalem, et cetera. I think every, every day has a unique flavor because every day celebrates the conquest of a different part of our country. But we made a mistake. Huh. We made a mistake. We assumed that Jewish history had finally attained its happy ending. I and mean, that was a big mistake of 1967. We neglected to dream of the next stage, as you said. And now it's really time we begin to discuss what's left to accomplish and how we can be characters in the story of its fulfillment. How can we be active characters in this chapter of Jewish history? And I think we need to recognize that Zionism as a powerful, inspirational, revolutionary movement ended in 1967, ended at the Six-Day War, meaning Yosef had accomplished everything it's going to accomplish. That doesn't mean it no longer has a place in our society or in the makeup of our state. It does. As being the central driving force, it right. had it had achieved its goal. It was right. no longer like this. Yeah. It reached Zion. It, it reached Zion. And once it reached Zion, once Zionism brought us back to Zion, brought us back to Jerusalem, a new stage opened up. And I think now the challenge is really understanding that Zionism created the conditions for the next stage of Jewish liberation. And since 1967, I think the Jewish people have really been challenged to identify and achieve the next stage of Jewish liberation, the next objectives of Jewish history. Yeah, 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 totally. I I totally agree. I think that is a key feature, if not the central feature of the stage that we're at now. And I think that really begins with the understanding, the awareness that the cultivation of our soil, the revival of our language, the ingathering of our exiles, the attainment of independence, and the unification of Jerusalem merely represent important stages in a larger revolution that still isn't over. And that we will need to play meaningful roles as participants in it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in any case, uh, Shammai Siskin, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. This was great. I want to wish you a Shabbat Shalom and a Chag Sameach, a Yom Yerushalayim Sameach, with all of Am Yisrael. Chag Sameach, Yehuda. And uh, anyone interested in checking out the show notes can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 52. Chag Yerushalayim Sameach.